My name's Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. Most most of you folks know that. And uh, we're we're here in between, kind of this in between time between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. So we're really really focusing on on both and just really wanting to go deeper. And the worship and and the ministry that um, Susan led, it's all flowing together, isn't it? And yeah, so I love, I love how Holy Spirit orchestrates things. <laughs> he does more than we can ask or think. So, uh, so Holy Spirit, we ask, we ask for more. We ask for more. We open up our spirits to you, Holy Spirit. We want to have and we want to have encounters that will change us. Reveal Jesus to us, Holy Spirit. Reveal more of the riches of our inheritance in him. And we want to we glorify you, King Jesus. We glorify you. We magnify you. We welcome you to walk among us. We welcome you to walk among us, Jesus. We ask for we ask for that we would see you with with the eyes of our heart. We want to see you, Jesus, with the eyes of our heart. We want to go deeper with you, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I ask that you do all you want to do here today, Father. We are your family. We are so grateful to be your family. So as I was praying about sharing something this weekend, what I really want is, and I think all of us do, we just want to embrace Jesus more deeply. And we want to experience his embrace more deeply. Yeah. Embracing you, Jesus, your, your mortal life, your suffering, your death, and your resurrection for us. It's all about you, Jesus, and yet you did it for us. I really appreciate this quote because sometimes we approach the cross as kind of a legal transaction. In fact, some of the teaching has been about that, kind of a, you know, a, a, a judicial or penal view. And there's some biblical reasons for some, why some people believe that, but I, I, I kind of went into that a lot uh, in a talk I gave back on October 17th called Two Versions of the Gospel. You're welcome to go back and listen to it if you want on podcast. And uh, I've wrestled with this this perspective I grew up with, which was that, that Father God poured out his wrath on Jesus. He was mad at us, but he poured it out on Jesus. And that just really messes with me. 
it doesn't make any sense to me that this loving trinity, this loving community, that one of them would pour out wrath on one of the other ones. And also, it makes Father God look like he's angry at us in that, in that we've got to kind of hide from him. And that's not true. God was in, Father God was in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, reconciling us to him. Yeah. So we want to get out of the kind of the law version into the relational version, the, the, the love version, if you will. The cross is not a law, but rather, rather it radically demonstrates the character of who God is. We need to quit distorting our vision by looking at everything with our law spectacles and throw them on the floor and step on the glass. <laughs> the cross is extraordinarily radical, a scandal. And we reduce it to a pocket-sized principle, a rule we can pin on in our refrigerator door. That's not the cross, is it? It's, it's a tremendous and deep mystery. And at its heart, it was about love, unimaginable love. He is not here. The women heard when they showed up at the tomb on Sunday morning. He has risen. Yay! Hallelujah. And we are here to celebrate your resurrection for us, Jesus. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna listen to a story from scripture. You're gonna listen, I'm gonna read. <laughs> If I listen to it, won't work. <laughs> this is the. This is just a really wonderful passage, a story. So, if you want to close your eyes, you can picture yourself in this, in um, the holodeck of the Bible. Now, this is the same day those the women uh, went to the tomb, and the uh, the angel said, "He's not here. He's risen." The same day. Two of the disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? What things? Jesus asked. (laughs) About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They were amazing women. (laughs) They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. 
They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So he, meaning Jesus, said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to where they were going, to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And while he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Yeah, isn't that a a great story? So Jesus, our hearts are burning within us for more of you. We long for more of you. Thank you that we don't that sometimes you come in ways that are, are not easy to perceive. And we ask that our spirits at least will be aware of you. And that our, the rest of us will catch on as soon as possible. And a bit later on, Jesus appeared to his disciples. And I'm just not, I'm not reading the whole account there, just a, a, an excerpt. And then he said to them, so these are all the disciples, he just showed up in the room and started talking with them, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying, this is what, what it had to happen, I had to go through this, and now it's time to to preach repentance and remission of sins in my name to all nations. And you are the witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And and what, what was the promise of his Father? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you for coming and revealing Jesus to us. Thank you for empowering us to to share the good news and to live a life of joy in, in your presence. So we're getting some... Jesus is explaining some things. And have, have you ever gone back through the Old Testament and and looked up the scriptures about Jesus, there are a lot. It's really quite amazing. 
starting with Moses. Moses talked about another prophet coming, didn't he? And you should listen to him. Um, Isaiah has a lot to say about Jesus, big time. Then there's Micah, uh, Zechariah. Actually, Jesus is all through the Old Testament one way or another, isn't he? And I'm sure I encourage you to do that. And let him reveal more of himself in, in, in the words the prophet spoke about him. And I have, a, I have a question for you tonight. Why? What motivated Jesus to go through the humiliations, the rejections, the mockings, the excruciating physical trauma, and the slow death through exhaustion and asphyxiation in public. You must have had a really big why. You need something more than an intellectual belief system to do that. It wasn't just a good idea. And another question, why did... He resurrected in his human body. We'll talk about that a bit later. Of course, a lot of you probably went right to John 3.16. Yes. So, so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoso, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we know it was love that motivated Jesus the love he and Father God shared for humanity. And we can get a deeper, fuller understanding in John 17. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father. I do not pray for these alone, talking about his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. One with Father, Jesus, and each other. Jesus prayed this. He desires this. He lived as a human for this. He suffered and died for this to be possible for us. A loving, wholehearted family, transparent and trusting with each other. It's, it's pretty astounding. And I ask Holy Spirit that you unpack that for each of us that we, we drink that in even further. A little more in John 17. And the glory which you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. 
I believe we need that glory that Jesus was praying for to have enough substance, enough weightiness, if you will, to be in Father God's presence, to be in Jesus' glorified presence. I believe that was a prayer. Make them more substantial, Father, so they, they, can, they can handle being with us. <laughs> there, there are stories. Of, uh, have you ever heard of a prophet named Smith Wigglesworth? He would, he would have pre, pre-service prayer meetings, and the glory of God would come. And it would come so strongly that one by one, everybody else left the room because they couldn't handle the glory. And one man determined that no matter what, he was going to stay with Smith until the end. (laughs) But but finally, with sighing and and great groans, he crawled out of the room because he couldn't handle any more of God's glory. But Jesus is praying for us that we will we'll have enough substance, we'll have enough of his glory in us that we, we can see him face-to-face as he is. And the Bible talks about that we're going from glory to glory. So, so he's, he's building us up in the glory realm. <laughs> we are becoming more and more like Jesus. And this is part of what Paul prays in Ephesians, that we would comprehend the fullness of our inheritance in Jesus. Now, that's a good, that's a good message right there. We could stay there, and that would be more than enough. That, to me, that's the central why for Jesus, and in, in a, the central a central understanding of how he wants to relate with us. I'm so grateful that John wrote his gospel. We would have kind of missed this without him, huh? Yeah. So I want to talk more about what being one involves. So we can all get, you know, start now. <laughs> we, already are, we already have started now, but we can, we can go further. Danny Silk said something recently. He had a talk on humility, and this just rocked me. He said, we can't have intimacy without humility. That rocked me when I started thinking about it. In other words, we can have a master-slave relationship but you can't really have intimacy unless both parties are, are willing to let go of just having their own way and, and care about what's going on with the other person. Be, be influenceable, be, be willing to be affected by being, being coming attuned with that person. So what does true life-giving intimacy need? Humility, that's right. True life-giving intimacy cannot be based upon law or rules, right? Have you ever tried running your marriage with rules? I have. 
Every time there was a problem, I'd make another rule. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> it, that applies to more than just marriage, but marriage is a really good example. Susan got so tired of my rules. <laughs> she definitely deserves sainthood for what she went through. <laughs> so, it, so, right, real relationship doesn't work with law, doesn't work with rules. We need humility, and I believe we also need a living conscience. They, all, they work together, don't they? So that we are able to stay attuned to the other person. And they need humility and a living conscience to attune with us, with humans. And I believe also this is true for us with Jesus and with Father God and with Holy Spirit. Each person needs to show up, don't they? In the relationship. But neither can simply dominate or intimacy is lost to a master-slave relationship. I tried that one too. It wasn't a lot of intimacy. It wasn't any fun. And this beautiful woman that I fell in love with who was wild and free, I was trying to domesticate her. Bad idea. Bad idea. Much better now. <laughs> Susan's giving the thumbs up. <laughs> Did you ever think about the extent that Jesus re- revealed his humility so he could connect with us? Jesus humbled himself to an unimaginable degree to offer us the great gift of intimacy with himself and the Father. He emptied himself. He, he emptied himself. Let's see. He emptied, uh, lived as a vulnerable human being, subjected to the horrible emotional, emotional and physical damage humans inflict on each other. So the truth of his courageous love for us is undeniable. He subjected himself to what can happen to a human being on the earth. He humbled himself. As Susan was talking about earlier, we didn't compare notes about this, by the way. He he humbled himself to be attuned to our weaknesses and struggles. That wasn't an intellectual exercise. He experienced it. And Jesus felt the full force of our rejection of him, our loving creator. We'd rather, love, we'd rather run our own life independently and decide right and wrong for ourselves rather than live in relationship with him. Now, I realize you weren't personally there 2,000 years ago, but I would I'd make the case that our own self-protective, self-righteous, self-defining what right and wrong is, not wanting to be dependent on anybody else, we, we would have done the same thing to Jesus. The same, the same issues are in us that were in, were in um, the Jewish nation 2,000 years ago. Can you, can you see that too? 
Our, yet our deepest heart longs for Jesus. So there's a tension there, isn't it? Longs for our Father. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, our hearts burn within us and our spirit leaps with joy in his presence. Yeah. I'm going to talk about conscience a little bit. This is from Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, yay, by the new, a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Who's that high priest? Jesus. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Jesus provided... For our conscience. He knew as a result of the fall, our, con- our consciences were evil, were twisted, were um, often seared, shut down. Susan talked about the heart of stone. Jesus, through his sacrifice, his death, and his resurrection, provided for our consciences to be restored, to come alive. And why do we, what, what, what good is a conscience? Some, some folks with a guilty conscience would rather not have one, right? <laughs> I really believe that a, a, a living conscience isn't about feeling guilty all the time. All right, so be free of that. That would really be a bummer. Who'd want... Who just wants somebody to, to, to tell them how bad they are all the time? <laughs> that would be awful. And that wouldn't be life-giving. It would kind of get in the way of relationships because we'd be always bummed, you know. So, so that's, not, that's, not the primary, it, it, that's not the primary reason for conscience. A living, to me, a living conscience continually helps us to return and stay in the river of life. What if that was our, what our conscience was doing? Helping us stay and return when we veered off in, in the river of life. <laughs> Jesus' blood sprinkles our conscience clean. Our conscience is made alive, thank you, with his life. With his life. Yeah. Let's see. There we go. The water, and this is from First Peter three. The waters of baptism do that for you, and, and you know this in the context. It means indicate salvation. They do that for us not by washing away dirt from our skin, but by presenting you through Jesus's resurrection before God with a clear conscience. Through His resurrection, when when uh, when we go through baptism. We are identifying with the death of Jesus as we go into the water and the resurrection of Jesus when we come out of the water. And some, some of us have had pretty profound experiences during our baptisms, huh? Because we are saying, we, I am in you, I am with you, Jesus. What you, I accept what you did for me, and I am, 
I am participating with you in that. We are presented through Jesus' resurrection before God with a clear conscience. Yay! And Peter goes on to point this out. Jesus has the last word on everything and everyone, from angels to armies. Nobody's going to overrule him. He's standing right alongside God, and what he says goes. Our conscience is not, to me, is not so much about just figuring out what's right and wrong. Our conscience is empowered by the Holy Spirit to be drawn what is true life, drawn to what is true life, and to avoid what brings death. Even if it looks good, right? Sometimes things look good. Sometimes the way of man looks good to him, but its ways leads to death. It does. Does we need a, we need a living conscience to help us be aware of what looks good, but but is leading to death, and aware of the damage we've caused. At least if you've lived long enough, we long for a clear conscience. Jesus seeks the joyful fellowship made possible because our conscience is in tune with Him and with each other. And Jesus, we re- receive anew Your blood shed once for all. Cleansing and restoring our conscience. Ha! Huh. Thank you. Conscience and sin. The law was given through Moses. The, the law given through Moses was necessary for those who were former slaves. They needed what I would call guardrails that were obvious even when their consciences weren't yet fully alive. Does that make sense? Like, if, if, you're, if you're just used to being a slave and being told what to do, and you're not used to being a free person in tune with a clear, clean conscience, you may not know what's not good and what is. You may not know what brings life and what doesn't. One example I've been struck with recently is, is when, uh, when God said, don't, don't boil a calf in its mother's milk. And Susan and I went to Jerusalem several years ago. And we, 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 we both went to different restaurants on, on this plaza. And uh, she went to one, one restaurant that had, serves things with milk, I think, and I went to one that served things with meat. And then we tried to sit at the same table. And the, um, the religious enforcers came over and said, oh, you can't sit together because your, your, your tray has milk in it and your tray has meat in it, and we just... We never want to get to let them get even close to each other. So the the Jews took that law, that that requirement from God, and they made it into, uh, oh, God just doesn't want this to happen, and we're actually going to make kind of a fence around that and a fence around that to make sure that we don't ever just get God's disapproval about that. But what was God really going after? It's just cruel to boil a calf in its mother's milk. Don't do that. Does that make sense? If your conscience was alive, you'd, you'd get that. But here I'm, I'm, I'm giving you this guardrail until, until your conscience starts coming into alignment with my, with my heart. Does that make sense? 
Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Another way to say this, it's the very nature of sin that leads to death. Trying to live independently of the one who is life, which we've all tried to do, leads to degradation, deterioration, broken hearts, wounded spirits, a culture of death, death spawning ecosystems. But God, through Jesus, opened wide the door of life to each of us. John 17.3, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing, experientially knowing, being in the presence of Father God and Jesus. Sin, on the other hand, it always, always leads to, some, to many different forms of death. It's more than just breaking rules. Much more. Sin diverges from what is life and what brings life. Sin is much more than breaking, just breaking the rules. Sin degrades people, damages hearts, corrodes the fabric of relationships, and harms all creation. I'm talking about the land, the plants, the animals, the atmosphere. Yeah, it does. We do all those things when we just do things for our own sin, for our own selfish benefit. When we don't care about how we're affecting other people, when our conscience is not alive and present, we'll do that, won't we? We won't care about future generations. We won't care about how we run over the people in our life, and it just brings death everywhere it goes. That's why we need a good conscience. We need a clear conscience. We need a living conscience. Matters of the heart. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was drawing attention to what kind of issues? Heart issues, wasn't he? He was, as Leif Hetland says, all kingdom matters are matters of the heart. And when the spirit of our mind, the spirit of our mind is renewed, Ephesians 4.23, by the Holy Spirit, we think... We feel and we act in loving, life-giving ways. Chris Valentin tells a story of a, um, a young man who was really excited about this grace teaching he had heard. Uh, I tend to call that kind of the ultra-grace teaching that was going around a few years ago. And so the young man said to Chris... Grace means I never have to say I'm sorry. And Chris immediately responded, I wish I was as fast as Chris. (laughs) Chris immediately responded, well, you've never been married. (laughs) Uh, Let's all laugh on that one. (laughs) And that is really an example of where we, of, of, of still trying to have these law lenses, you know, even applying to grace using, using law, law lenses. Chris said, the goal, my goal with my wife is not to see how much I can get away with. 
right? Yes, I could probably get away with not apologizing. And she'd still, she wouldn't divorce me, at least, you know, first time or so. But he, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit here. This is Russ's filling in the paraphrase version. Um, <laughs> but that's not the goal of my, of my of, that's not my goal in my marriage, is not to see what I can get the maximum I can get away with. It's about having a loving, intimate connection with my wife. It's about, it's about calling out the best in each other. Does that make sense? But if we, if we, even if we look at grace through the lens, through law lenses, we're going to come up to conclusions like, well, I don't have to ever say I'm sorry. (laughs) Another example why a good conscience and humility are really good, good things, good qualities to have in all relationships. Yeah. That's a good word right there, Chris. And why did Jesus resurrect in his human body? That was my other question. I had two why questions. What are some of the things you think of? Here are some of the things I have, and I'm not claiming these are complete. This proved his victory over death in the grave. Yes, that's a big one, right? I've lost, I've lost loved ones. Most of us have lost loved ones. And to know that Jesus... Jesus has, a vict- has victory over them, and death and the grave are not the end for our loved ones or for us. His resurrection in his human body also empowered his followers to risk and even often lose their lives to share his story. Something really changed for those disciples after he was resurrected, and then after they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were different folks, Right? <laughs> and because they knew, I know that I my death when I die, it's not going to be the end. I'm going to be with Jesus, and and then eventually I'm going to have a new bo- a new a new physical body. It also reveals that we will have physical bodies when He returns. Why is that important? Well, this, it means that this oneness that Jesus prayed for is not just kind of a spiritual merging into like an oceanic consciousness, like like some like some Eastern religions teach, right? That's that's the kind of their goal. We'll just kind of become merged into the into the uh, the Atman, into the oneness, right? We're all still going to be individuals. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. We will still each be our own person interacting with the Trinity and each other through love and the flow of spiritual life. Yeah, I thought so too. Jesus. Just I encourage each of you to let yourself be utterly captivated by Jesus the mystery of his great love for you, his courage and suffering to have a true, life-giving, unfolding relationship with you forever. Wow. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus.
in a bit, I'm going to have Susan come up and do some further, well, whatever the Holy Spirit leads her to do. Yay. Uh, I want to just have you join me in uh, exulting over Paul's response in Ephesians 3. My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. And I ask him to strengthen you in, by his spirit, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength, that Christ may live in you as you open the door and invite him in. I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, that you will be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. God can do anything, you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. God can do anything, you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. And this is really important. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us his spirit deeply and gently within us. I'm going to read that again. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us. His spirit deeply and gently within us. This is, this is the Savior we have. Thank you, Jesus. We... We do bow the knee before you, Father, and we say thank you. Thank you for the plan you and Jesus made and the unfolding beauty and glory and freedom and relationship each one of, the, one of us gets to experience with you. So I just wanted to um, sort of kind of develop something here. Um, about the heart of God for us that we see so evident in Jesus coming to the earth. But, you know, it started way back when, the very beginning of time. He wanted to come and be with us. So I want to start by looking at the Old Testament and just see how we see, how, oh, just watch how God's heart for us gets developed and the shift that comes when it stops being about the law, when it stops being about us working hard to try and connect to God, and it starts being about he did all the work to be able to connect with us. So let's start by looking at the preparation of the temple. Remember way back when David in the Old Testament so wanted he had such a heart for God. He said, like, I so want you, God. I will do whatever it takes to build a temple 
for you to be here and dwell with us. But it wasn't for David to do that. It went to his son Solomon to be able to do that. So God said, okay, Solomon, this is going to be for you to do this. He so yearned, just like his father, for God to come. So they didn't have to wait just like once a year, right? It was once a year. The priests would do this big, fancy sacrifice so they could get clean enough to walk in to the tent of meeting. And it was only for a select few. And Solomon was like, God, I want your presence to be here all the time. All the time. I want you to be here so we know where you are and you, we just, we just can come all the time. We don't have to wait for a special day, a special feast, a special whatever to have you here all the time. And so he says this. This is in, this is from Second Chronicles. The house which I am about to build will be great. For greater is our God than all the gods. But he who is able to build a house for him, who is able to build a house for him? Who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him? Who am I to build a house for the God? of God's, the King of Kings. It was so in his heart, but I will. I will, Jesus. I will, God. I will build a temple for the Lord to dwell in forever, a temple for him to place his presence and the fullness of his name. I will do whatever it takes. I will spare no expense, no effort, no energy. To prepare a place for you, God, worthy of your name, worthy of your presence. And so, of course, as you know, they brought in all the master craftsmen. And they built it exactly to the specifications the Lord laid out to them. And thus, from... uh, Second Chronicles 5, Thus all the work for the house of the Lord was finished. It was decorated with precious stones, the best wood available, and the finest metals that were so weighty they couldn't even be measured. And Solomon brought in all the things that his father David had dedicated, even all the silver and all the gold, because it was the most precious place. They saved the best for this place. They brought up the ark and the tent of meeting and all that was holy, which was in the tent. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark to get it prepared for God to come and dwell in were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. The sacrifice had to be such a high, high value the most outrageous sacrifice ever done to invite the presence of God into that place. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to this place, into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. 
And the priests came forth from that holy place. And then all the Levitical singers, clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord. And they praised the Lord, saying, He is good. And his love endures forever. And then the house of the Lord, which was filled with a cloud, so heavy, so thick, oh, so filled with the glory, the kabod of God, the priest, the priest could not stand to minister because of this cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled this house, this house of Solomon, the house of God. And Solomon prayed a prayer, inviting God to come and dwell with them forever, always hearing their prayers, always having his eye upon them, always watching over their lives, his presence with them. And when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed that burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter the house because of the glory of the Lord that was there. And the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down, and the glory of the Lord upon the house bowed down to the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped, and they gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly, truly, he is good. Truly, his loving kindness endures forever. It was so Solomon's heart. God, I will do whatever it takes. And the Lord said, Yes, I'm going to be there. And I just want to move you now into, into what Jesus did at the cross into what Jesus did at the cross, far surpasses the sacrifice of oxen and sheep beyond measure. What Jesus did at the cross for you, because Jesus was saying, Father, I will do whatever it takes. It's no longer about us doing whatever it takes. He said, Father, I'll do whatever it takes. Father, I'll do whatever it takes. Father, Father, I want them there with us. I love them so much. I will do whatever it takes. I will do whatever it takes to cause our presence to come dwell in them. The temples you prepared for me just as Solomon prepared his temple for the Lord. This is the work of the cross that prepared your bodies a living sacrifice. It's the same weight. It's the same weightiness. It's the same extravagant preparation he did in preparing your heart very intentionally planned out, thought out, and just just as weighty, just as precious, and just as valuable in every way 
even more than what Solomon did in those very careful, weighty preparations of the temple of old. And this was Jesus' prayer to his Father, his heart, his passion for you. Father, I have given to them the glory and honor which you have given me, that they may may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, in order that they may become one in perfect unity, that the world may know and recognize that you sent me and that you have loved them just as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have entrusted to me may be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. I have made your name known to them and revealed your character and your very self. And I will continue to make you known that the love you have bestowed upon me may be in them. I love them. I love them, Father. I love them, Father. I want to dwell in them. I find them fit and perfect dwelling place for my presence. And I propose to you all that you are that temple created so intentionally, crafted out of the best, most costliest materials. Jew, a fitting place for the God of all creation to come and reside in. And he was willing to do whatever it takes to reside with the fullness of his presence, his name indwelling you in all its glory. You are worth everything to Jesus. And you are worth everything to the Father. Thank you, Susan. Could you feel the passion in that? We receive your passion. The passion that took you through the last week of your mortal life, Jesus. We're in awe of you. And we love you. And if there's anyone here who feels drawn to Jesus, who's never said, Jesus, I want to be, I want you to be my savior, I want you to be my king, I want your life in me, I want my life in you. If there's anybody here who has not made that desire that commitment to Jesus before and want to do that tonight, I invite you to come forward.
Jesus. And uh, if you feel shy, I still encourage you to come forward if, if that's your desire. It's good to do things publicly. It's good to step, step out of our comfort zones. If you have, if you have it, and if anyone here is just not quite ready but wants to come and see me or Joe or Anna or Susan later, you're welcome to do that too. Yeah. So. Hmm. I'm going to end with uh, the last part of Paul's statement in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, the last stanza. It's kind of the stanza. Glory to God in the church. Glory to God in the Messiah, Jesus. Glory down all generations. Glory through all millennia. Oh, yes. We honor and praise and glorify you. And we turn our hearts to you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you help us be prepared to go further and further and deeper and deeper into this this relationship with Jesus and Father God and you. Amen. And it's uh, for those who have children in Children's Church, it's time to pick them up. Thank you very, very much.